Welcome to Oh No Not, the podcast, where we talk about the people, places, and things that you should know about who are dead that you don't know about, and they died recently. Correct. You maybe you have been scanning the headlines of your Facebook. I know they've they've trained your their algorithm. In oh some yeah, capacity. to just people that you yeah. know. Just oh. so they want to make you know it. Uh, you just have your friend circle and right. just okay. Uh, you know, so you you communicate in a vacuum with your friends and not hear from the, the outside world. The bubble. Effect. The bubble. Anyway, yes. uh, if you uh, if you are following the news, these people theoretically might have passed by you mm-hmm. without uh, you being aware of their lives, and we are here to shine a little bit of light onto their lives. But these people, uh, at least in my case, both of the people I'm going to talk about today are trailblazers, groundbreakers, broke ceilings of glass, maybe. Interesting. And uh, neither of them I knew about or had heard about until I read about them, and I'm like, hey... These people mm-hmm. have affected my life. Okay. So. All right. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. So, shall we get started? Let's get started. Let's oh, wait, get into what's, it. What's your name? Uh, I'm Rick. Oh, hi, Rick. Good I'm to see you. Nice I, to meet you. You too? Uh-huh. All right. So my first person is Bob Smith. Died on January 20th at the age of 59 of ALS, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease, a horrible, horrible way to die. Uh, he was the first openly gay comic to perform on The Tonight Show. Okay. So let's hear his story. He was born Robert Smith, not of the cure, on December 24th, 1958 in Buffalo, New York. His father was a state trooper. His mother was a homemaker. Uh, He graduated from the University of Buffalo with a degree in English and moved to Manhattan to become a stand-up comedian in 1986. Now, uh, he was determined to be successful while being an openly gay comedian, which was not an easy task in the mid-80s, hmm. as far as I can tell. Really? Even the mid-80s, like Manhattan? Very, yes. New York was a very macho uh, uh, environment. Hey, I'm yeah. walking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just Andrew Dice, even though I think Andrew Dice Clay was from L.A. But anyway, uh-huh. yeah, it's just it was hard to Hickory be... Hickory dickory duck. Right? Yes, exactly. That's a good one? Yes. Thank you. In 1988, he and uh, two other comedians... How do you pronounce the name J-A-F-F-E? Jaffe. Jaffe? Yeah. That's what I thought, mm-hmm. but that sounded wrong. I think it's Jaffe. So Jaffe Cohen and Danny Mc, uh, McWilliams formed a comedy group called uh, Funny Gay Male, in which each of them, it wasn't like a sketch comedy thing, though, because each of them would perform their own material in a full-length show, but they kind of banded together. So sure. It was like, like a King's a Comedy Tour? Yes, exactly. Like a Comedian's a Comedy Tour? Yes. Like a Queen's a Comedy Tour? <laughs> yes. Like blue-collar comedy? Uh, this show... Uh, gathered a lot of praise for the fact that it was a lot less, it was less profane and aggressive uh, as most of the comedy d- in the day. Basically, by the mid to late 80s, people like Sam Kinison, mm-hmm. Bill Hicks, there were a lot of like very political or just loud comedians, some good, some bad, but that kind of became the norm to be loud and in your face. Mm-hmm. And so these guys were a little less of that. Um, but also, their uh, material, it was they did not use women or minorities as the butt of the jokes, hmm. which was also kind of a thing that was, was happening. Tra- weirdly trailblazing. Yeah, yeah. In 1984, it was announced that Bob would be on HBO's inaugural season of the HBO half-hour comedy show. Okay. I guess it's... Called t- well, it was, yeah, it was just called HBO Comedy Half Hour. Oh, okay. And, and on that, like, uh, Chris Rock premiered that year... <sighs> That's that, my was, HB- that, was that your Chris Rock impression? <laughs> that's my that's my HBO uh, fuzz. Ah, <laughs> perfected that from Thank watching you. Hours of the Wire. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, so the night before that special was to premiere, he was a guest on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Uh, it wasn't until the rehearsal 
uh, that he learned that the main guest that night was Garth Brooks. Uh, he was quoted as saying, I remember looking out in the audience and seeing half the crowd had cowboy hats on. I just said to myself, I hope the gay rodeo's in town. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pre, uh, yeah, not Chris Gaines fans? No. Okay. No. This is, what, Chris Gaines, 94? I don't know. It was like right around there. It was not actually noted until after he made the appearance that he was in fact the first gay comic to appear on the show. Hmm. So it was Well, the first openly gay. Openly gay, yeah. yes. Sorry. There's say. plenty, yeah. plenty of gay <laughs> comics but, before. But the first openly gay, uh, so it wasn't build is like oh tonight on jay leno a gay man right it wasn't like, like ellen's first kiss exactly that was, that it was, was it was not known until after the fact he had so to kind of get into what kind of comedy he did mm. uh let me play you and the viewers a little bit of his comedy i have to tell you i come from a very conservative family and it wasn't easy telling my parents that i'm gay in fact i made my carefully worded announcement at thanksgiving I said, Mom, would you please pass the gravy to a homosexual? She passed it to my father. So his type of comedy was more situational, observational humor. Um, but like you heard in that joke, he wouldn't use his sexuality as the butt of the joke, or rather he was part of the joke. Right. So it wasn't like gay people are like this, straight people are like this. It was just kind of observations of living a life as an openly gay man. Which should be what comedy is. Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. So fellow gay comedian Judy Gold who I love, praised him by saying, uh, and this was from uh, the New York Times obituary, uh, Bob came out on stage as a proud gay man in the straight comedy clubs in the mid-80s at the height of the AIDS crisis by telling an unthreatening and hilarious joke. There were so many of us who were terrified to be truthful about who we were at the time because it would end our careers. But here was this tall, handsome man who resembled Jimmy Stewart fearlessly delivering brilliant material with dignity and confidence. He talked about his sexual sexuality like it was no big deal, and in turn, it became no big deal. So I think that's about as high praise as you can get. Yeah, like, definitely. Jay Leno said a bunch of great stuff about it. There were a ton of uh, great quotes from people just talking about how he was this strong trailblazer but did not see himself as that. Mm. He just saw himself as himself, and he was just going to talk about himself like any other comedian would. Mm -hmm. um, in 2006, he began noticing the first symptoms of his disease, and by 2010, he had stopped performing because his speech was affected. Instead, he started writing. Uh, he released a number of books, including novels and collections of sto short stories and essays, including uh, his last one released in 2016 called uh, Treehab, Tales from My Natural Wildlife. Cool comedian. Cool. I'd never heard of him. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of his comedy is pretty inoffensive. Like, um, but still very funny. Yeah. And so maybe not the type of comedy I would normally listen to just with kind of like the ba 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 punchline, but still really funny and seeing how important he was, I think, in culture in general, mm -hmm. I'm going to seek more of him out. So, oh no, not Bob Smith. Cool. Um, Who do you got? All right. My first person is a fellow by the name of Esmond Bradley Martin. Although everywhere that I saw uh, stories about him, people called him Bradley Martin. So he cut off the first first name. Gotcha. Um, he was uh, 76 years old, and he died by being murdered. Not a good way to die. We'll get into that in a little bit, but first, a lot about his life. Um, <laughs> he was he was born uh, 1941 in New York. He uh, I couldn't find a lot for his first 30 years, really. And then in the 70s, he goes to Kenya, and that is basically where the rest of this story takes place. So um, not uh, only in Kenya, but uh, we'll see. Let me let me paint the picture. Yeah, already lost me. <laughs> so in Kenya, uh, he he became this environmentalist activist with a focus on the trade of ivory. So that's that's his thing. Okay, I know who this is now. Okay. Yep. So yep. 
Um, during that time in Kenya, he noticed that it, it was just kind of like there were all these rhinos, and all of a sudden there weren't all these rhinos anymore. And he was like, "Where all?" And he's like, "Where would all the rhinos go?" <laughs> but really, I mean, it wasn't that. It was more like, "Where was the ivory going?" And no one knew. Like people had, you know, speculation. There was there people uh, with like ivory suits going like, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Here's my ivory business card. I think that's a Simpsons joke. Is it? Yeah, because <laughs> it was the the stomp stompy episode. Oh right, right. We're like. Homer's like, I think we could trust this guy. And Bart's like, Dad, his business card's made out of ivory. <laughs> so it was like, it was a known thing, right? Of like, they're killing elephants for ivory. Uh, but no one knew where it was. A lot, There was a lot of speculation that it was um, being used as an aphrodisiac in China. He found out, that out to be false. But he was just, he really needed to know where the market was. Um, and so he became this like, investigative journalist mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. i don't know if journalism is the right like uh thing. He, be- he became from what i read read and heard about this guy he became more of like an analyst he was just like a researcher less of like no but he would go around and like record conversations and secretly photograph people but he and would like also pose go as a buyer but he would more i mean the thing that i heard it was he was more going and like counting the number of and so he was actually tracking how much mm-hmm. was being bought and sold and what the the numbers were. Right. So before that, because all this is underground, no one really knew what the price of ivory was mm-hmm. on a consistent basis. Yeah. He. I mean, he's the person who really spearheaded a lot of what became um, just an understanding of how this market works. Yep. And so he, but like he started, yeah, to like actually posing as a buyer mm-hmm. and recording these conversations and and doing these. He did uh, with his wife Chrissy. They did uh, two books. One called Cargos of the East. One called Run Rhino Run, <laughs> which is a great name. Um, soon, soon, soon to be a Nickelodeon film. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they, so that was their thing. They really tracked like where Ivory was going at the time. Like I said. It was thought that most rhinos were being killed as an aphrodisiac in China. He found that to be false. He, at that time, this was in the 70s, he found that most were going to North Yemen to be made as handles for daggers. And it was be, they were being used in Asia for medicinal purposes. Uh, and he found that like 40% was going to Japan, 20% was going to Europe, 10 to 15% was going to the U.S. And he said, and this is a quote, the point is, if you want to save these animals, you have to know where the market is and combat that. Follow the trail of money. Right, follow the trail. Uh, in 1985, he went to China to a pharmaceutical company where, and this this was kind of nuts to me. So they were buying works of art and they were actually like smashing them with 20 kilogram bags and then collecting the ivory powder to use as medication um, because they couldn't import. Seems efficient. Right. Well, <laughs> so like the government wise, how it was set up, they couldn't import the the horns themselves but they could import the art and the carvings that were used like that had ivory in them and so they would buy those and then smash them and then whatever so it was like that type of stuff that he was uncovering were like these ways around certain laws that certain countries had and then exposing them to whoever needed it to be exposed to he became a un special envoy um, that would then get laws changed and ex- it's like yeah, it's kind of an incredible thing. Last year, China shut down its legal ivory market because of his research. Before 1989, it was still legal to buy mm-hmm. and sell ivory and trade ivory all around the world. And it kind of all came to a stop in 1989 right. because of him. He was asked, like, well, how do you define success? And he's like, you know, the practical way is to look at numbers. Um, in 1979, there were 3,500 white rhinos in Africa. Now it's over 
20,000. Um, but there were over 65,000 black rhinos and now there's only 5,100. So it's a mixed bag. It seemed like, it just seemed like such a, if you look back at the trajectory of his career, it just seemed like there's like all the accomplishments that he had were always undercut elsewhere by other things. Uh, he was also known as a sharp dresser and always carried a colorful handkerchief. Yeah, that's and the, and the thing I heard on NPR about this guy. They were saying like, you know, when you read about him you think that's like, oh, espionage and he was undercover, but like he was the most unstealthy person. Right. Like mm-hmm. he, you could pick him out of any crowd. He yeah. was tall and well-dressed and, But that's what like an ivory yeah. dealer theoretically would that's look true. like, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so he was murdered. Uh he was found his wife found him with a stab wound in his neck. The police right now are saying it was a botched burglary um they don't have any suspects but i mean everyone around like in the industry is like you know this happens pretty regularly where these environmentalists will get murdered yeah but you think if it they were trying to like make a point he would have been stabbed with one of those ivory handled knives yeah maybe (laughs) i mean yeah there's it's tough to tell like i mean he was apparently he was about to publish this big like expose on me and mar trade who knows like what'll happen with that um and I mean, he was known before, and so it's not like anyone didn't know where to find him before. So maybe it was a... Who knows? Yeah. So, like, it's a thing that, like, it has... He was murdered. He was murdered. Clearly. He was clearly murdered, and we'll see, like, what the actual, yeah, thing is. Um, So that's kind of all I have with him. Like, he had a really, like, interesting and important life, and it came to an unfortunate end at... 76 years old, which is still pretty old. So (laughs) I don't know what to say. Oh, no, not Esmond Bradley Martin. Awesome. All right. My next person is Lynn Bolin. Uh, Died on either... Lynn Bolin? Yes. Uh Uh, Died on either January 18th or 19th. Uh, Like, Wikipedia says 18th New York Times? No, wait. Wikipedia says 19th. Uh, I think, like, the Boston Globe says 19th, but the New York Times and the LA Times... Say the 18th. What what is time anyway? Yeah. So she died at the age of 76. Either way, no reason for death was given, but she had been battling the flu recently. Uh, she was a uh, TV executive who broke the glass ceiling by becoming the first female TV exec uh, at a major TV station. Mm-hmm. She was born on March 21st, 1941, in Benton, Illinois. Rick, where the hell is Benton, Illinois? I have no idea, actually. No. No, Illinois is a, a big state. A weirdly big state. I, I just assume that was what you were going no for. no idea where Benton, no. <laughs> uh, well, you'll like this part of it. Uh, her father was a union organizer for the United Mine Workers. There we go. Uh, she went to school in St. Louis and New York, but never graduated, stating later that she didn't think a degree was very important. I agree with all that. Yeah. Uh, she worked on TV commercials for five years uh, in New York before moving to Hollywood to work on TV shows. She would work on over... 30 pilots for a company called Metro Media Producers Corp before uh, leaving to work as a producer on the NBC show Macmillan and Wife. Uh, She was able to turn the show's ratings around within six months and because of that was able to land an interview to become the daytime director of programming at NBC. Um, She claimed she was able to talk her way into the job by saying, uh, by pointing out that the majority of people that watch daytime TV are uh, women and that she was a woman and she understood the audience. Pretty good. I found out where Benton is. Oh, where is it at? It's like Southern Illinois, which is, I mean, that's the whole, basically a different state from so the Chicago area. It had a population of 7,000. Ah, small town. Small town. Uh, so <laughs> at the age of 72, uh, she was not only able to become the first 
uh, woman executive, but she was also only 31, which is in in, in, in interviews later, because at the time, um, later she would become vice president of pro- overall programming in 1975, I believe. And when that happened, everyone was like interviewing her about this. And she's like, you know, it was also kind of crazy that I was 31. Yeah. Not right. just that I was a woman. Uh-huh. Um, she's given credit for pushing the narrative in soap operas and expanding them to the one-hour format. Previously, they were only 30 minutes. Maybe they uh, should she, stay 30 minutes. <laughs> she also <laughs> got rid of a lot of tired game shows and hosts, most famously firing the de- then-host of Jeopardy. Uh, and also... Wait, out- firing the host of Jeopardy? Yeah. Who's the, who was the host? I can't you remember. Know? It was right. Art something. It was Preacher. It was oh, like yeah. Right- Trebek didn't come until like 84. Okay. And outdated themes. Her goal was for women who watched her programming to feel empowered. Um, we also have her to thank for Wheel of Fortune. She brought that on air. <laughs> you know, I just watched that the other night accidentally. And? And you it's, love it? It's your favorite show? It's a dumb show. Oh, God, no. It is, I don't know it's, how yeah. that like still continues. It's, she when, they, when she joined NBC, they were trailing both ABC and CBS in the ratings. And when she left to form her old, own production company in 1976, they were first in the ratings. So she mm. turned it all around. Mm-hmm. One thing... That she's known for is you've seen the great Sydney Lament film Network, right? Uh, sure, yeah. So uh-huh. many people are convinced that she is the basis for Faye, Faye Dunaway's ruthless TV executive. Ah, uh, the writer of the film, uh, Patty Chilesky. Patty Chilesky. Ch- uh, what is yeah. it again? Patty Chayefsky. Oh, no, no. Patty Chayefsky. Chayefsky. Mm-hmm. Patty Chayefsky did spend time in the NBC offices while Bolin was there to do research. Though, before he died, he claimed that he wouldn't know Lynn Volan if she was sitting right in front of him. Uh, and for her part, she says there are a lot of striking similarities to her, the character in her, down to the types of cigarettes that they both smoked. But she was not a fan of the character. She told the LA Times in 1978, I didn't really like the character, even in a satirical... Uh, contest that it was created, she was not a believable woman in a network job. She was a cardboard cutout. Unfortunately, when she left, she was kind of at the height of her career. In 1976, she left to join to form her own production company and kind of made a series of TV shows that only last like a season or a few episodes. One mm-hmm. of them was called Web, W-E-B, about a fictional TV network that she claimed was her answer to network. Okay. None of them really did much. Um, she kept making like TV movies and everything in the 80s and eventually kind of did semi-retired and started writing. But um, nonetheless, like she's extremely influential and yeah, broke that glass ceiling and uh, became the first female executive at a major TV network. So, oh no, not Lynn Bullen. Cool. Thanks for making the soap operas an hour long. Yeah. <laughs> hey man, days of our lives. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so we will close out uh, with a lady by the name of Algia May Hilton. Uh, she died last week at the age of 88. Uh, couldn't find any other reason other than her daughter saying that it was expected. So take that for whatever that means. <laughs> I um, mean, we're all expected. We're to all die. expected to die. I yeah. Guess, yeah. Um, so she was born August 29th, 1929, in Johnston County, North Carolina. Uh, she was the youngest of 14 kids. Uh, her parents were Alexander and Ollie O'Neill, and they lived in an area known as O'Neill Township, which was named after the slaveholders who had owned the land. So, uh, still is it still named that? I th- I think so. Uh, and yeah, her parents were named O'Neill, so clearly there's a connection there. But I couldn't find like anything beyond that. So her dad was a tenant farmer who earned enough money to buy uh, his home and land to farm on, and that's how they grew up. 
so at nine, Algie May learned how to play the guitar from her mom and from her dad. She learned how to dance the two-step and also buck dancing. Have you heard of buck dancing? It's sort of it's similar to clogging. So like <laughs> sort of like a tap shoe-ish. A very loud. Kind of, yeah. Right, loud dancing. I think so. Yeah, it's basically like, you know, making rhythmic beats with your shoes in a clog form type of thing. And I'm sure there's like a more specific thing to that, right. but I don't know. I haven't taken that class. Uh, she picked up a th- uh, thing called Piedmont finger picking on the guitar. <laughs> Do you know what Pied- Piedmont finger picking is? So it's a style known as East Coast or Southeastern blues. Uh, and this is the quote. It's alternating thumb bass string rhythmic pattern supports a syncopated melody using the treble strings. Okay. No, I actually know what you're talking about. It's now. like ragtimey. So would she, would she buck dance while Piedmont guitaring? It seemed like, you know, either or or okay. both, but it just depended. Yeah. But that was so. Was that that was the thing that she was really good at? Was that this is like Mississippi Delta blues style of playing and singing and all that. As a teenager, she was this accomplished guitarist, played the twelve string. In uh, 1950, she got married. That's where she got her last name Hilton from. Um, and she had seven children of her own. She became a single parent when her husband died in 1965. And this was a quote from an article from last year. That she she gave an interview to like a local journalist and she was asked like what happened to her husband and she said and this is a quote murdered got killed in New York over that rock dope he died and he had so many women I tell you what I did ask the Lord to forgive him he came back here I was gonna bust a cap in his ass but I'm glad he didn't do it I don't even know where he's buried at <laughs> which is maybe the greatest quote that I've ever heard uh, she's never married again she said that one was enough and that she just is married to her family mm-hmm. um but like basically from the time she's a kid uh forever she just played music wherever she could play so that meant everything from like rest homes to campgrounds to jailhouses in the area wherever she could mostly friends and family um but then in 1978 this folklorist from uh University of North Carolina Chapel Hill named Glenn Hinson was doing he's putting together an album to accompany this museum exhibit that was going to take place in the uh, the school. He heard about her, he knocked on her door. Um, and according to a story, like she was she was deeply suspicious of this white stranger coming to her door as she should as she should. <laughs> um, but she said particularly because she'd just been playing at a house party where someone got stabbed. <laughs> and so she thought like this was the authorities asking about yeah. it. And so she was so scared. That and this is a story from Glenn Hinson mm. um, that she ripped the strings off her guitar to show him that she couldn't possibly be there playing because she doesn't even play <laughs> guitar. <laughs> but so anyway, I, the story goes that Hinton then like bought her some strings to like restring her guitar and like earned her trust throughout like a small little time. He, and then he uh, he recorded her. She like let let him record her. Um, and after that, like he helped her like get booked on a handful of festivals. Um, And then she came in 1983. uh, She was, you know, I hate saying discovered because it's like not discovering, but Mm -hmm. like uh, the famous folklorist, Alan Lomax. Do you know Alan Lomax? He had a TV show. um, I think it was PBS called American Patchwork. He was this dude who went through like the Mississippi Delta and all sorts of areas from like the fifties through, I think he died in like early 2000 basically just recording these musicians, like seeking out recording these musicians and then trying to get them deals of some capacity, but not really, mostly just like recording for preservation. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend 
going to YouTube, there's like the Alan Lomax collection or whatever that just is all these amazing songs. There's a lot of conversation we had about the like problematic nature of just a white dude going into, uh, you know, these impoverished areas and just kind of collecting these songs and then putting them out. Yeah, the Rye Cooter problem. <laughs> yeah, except he, ne- but he never like he didn't make a profit off of it. Mm-hmm. It was always like he would he would take it and he would record it and then give the money to the people. I don't, whatever. That's a different conversation. <laughs> anyway, highly recommend looking out all of his like all of the stuff that he recorded. Um, but so that but he was a big name and so 1983 came around and he recorded her. And um, a year after that, she played at Carnegie Hall because, like, that was the level that he kind of that, that was sort of what he had. He had this yeah. reputation of like finding this talent and exposing it to the world and like really being this megaphone for uh, these people who wouldn't otherwise be known or or even have their music preserved, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she played in Carnegie Hall in 1984. The day after she returned to uh, North Carolina, her house burned down completely. Uh, and people kind of said, you know, that was that was her life, basically, yeah. like in those two days. Like that was she was the top of the world, the bottom of the world, both yeah. both things. Um, she played folk, folk festivals throughout the rest of her life. In the 90s, she helped start the Music Maker Relay Foundation, which is a nonprofit in North Carolina that uh, preserves Southern musical traditions by basically funding musicians in the area. In 1996, she released an album called Honey Babe, um, which is just her... Her songs, it's, I think it's like 16 of her songs. Mm-hmm. Here's two of the best song titles I might have ever heard off of this this album. One is When You Kill the Chicken, Save Me the Head. <laughs> and the other is Cook Cornbread for Your Husband, and then parentheses, and Biscuits for Your Outside Man. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, with her death, she's like one of the last surviving Piedmont blues pickers mm-hmm. or whatever. And so, so that's it. So, I mean, there's certainly still some around, but she's kind of like one of those original ones that... Uh, that I think needed to be highlighted. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to play a song, right? Yeah, let's, okay. end, let's, let's fade it out with that. And so the song that we're going to play is a song called My Baby's Gone. My baby gone And he won't be back in town no more so, oh no, not Algia May Hilton. All right, so Rick, you uh, claim we have an update about yeah. someone we have covered? Usually do, we do not have updates, as this is usually the last yeah. word for most of these people. But uh, three or four episodes ago, mm-hmm. I highlighted Barry and Honey Sherman, this billionaire couple in Canada that they made their money off of the pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. and they were found Great people. dead. Great people. <laughs> uh, they were found dead in their house. and Hanging, at the time, right? Hanging, hanging side by side. Which is seems suspicious. It seems suspicious at the time. There was a lot of talk about it being a suicide or whatever, mm-hmm. but uh, apparently it's a pretty clear case of murder. It sounds like it's mm-hmm. become this like crazy story in Canada that people are following like minute by minute updates. There's some type of thing with like a brother going on. I don't know. It's uh, continue. Encur- encourage you to do some research on this. Yeah, it's like it's going n- like the story is becoming. It it'll in like. Whenever, uh, whenever Ryan Murphy does like his Canadian yeah. <laughs> like crime story, Canadian this will be the stories. first episode. Nice. So, uh, so that's it. Awesome. All right. Well, if you have any people, places, or things uh, you'd like us to talk about, send them into oh no not podcast at gmail or follow us on the Twitter at mm-hmm. oh no no trip at Twitter or whatever. We got retweeted once. Oh yeah. Yeah. Who? 
and random person. Oh, wow. Yeah. Got a fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, or text Rick at... Uh, 310-467-0608. <laughs> My sister said that I got doxxed, but I said... What like, does that mean? Doxxed? That's when like someone releases your private information on the webs. But I don't know if you could like self... It was like a self dox. Self-doc? Yeah. <laughs> I self-doc, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I should say, I hate when people do this, but, you know, if you enjoy this podcast, go on iTunes and uh, give us a good rating, and then more people will hear us. Yes, please do this. Uh, there aren't uh, enough people listening. Yeah, this is our 40th episode. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we do it for fun. We do it because we just like to hear ourselves talk. But, uh, you know, uh-huh. we'd like more people to hear us Tell your talk. friends. Tell your tell your grandma. It can't hurt to, like, just make a homemade advertisement and buy yeah. a Super Bowl, like, slot for us if you Yeah, can. or if you want to uh, buy us Facebook ads, we'll take yeah. it. Uh, anything to make this family yeah. exist. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, I hope I don't see any of it. Yeah.